Uh, let's just bow in prayer and then we'll um, get into God's word. Father, we do thank you for uh, the uh, wonders of your word, that your word informs our mind and uh, nourishes our soul and trains us to uh, live as people who bring glory to you in our lives. We uh, just pray now for ourselves and also for the children that uh, your word would sink deep roots into our lives and uh, that we would be uh, transformed by it. And we uh, uh, thank you for these things and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let me tell you about a very, very wonderful little tiny creature. It's called the European water spider. And the thing I like about the European water spider is that uh, it, uh, it lives completely underwater, but it breathes air. Uh, not that it gets the oxygen out of the water, but it actually breathes air. And the way it does that is when the uh, water spider is born, he kind of swims up to the uh, surface of the, of, the, of the lake and does a somersault. And as it does a somersault, it kind of creates a little bubble of air. And then he uh, tucks the bubble uh, into his body over his little breathing kind of apparatus and then swims down to the bottom of the lake and it'll start spinning a little web and then deposits the little bubble under the web. And then swims up to the surface, does another somersault. I'll show you a photograph of it, actually. There it is there. That's not as clear as when I originally did the uh, slides, but anyway, it's in your bulletins as well. So he um, keeps on repeating this exercise and brings little bubbles down and attaches the bubbles together so that eventually he's got a little, uh, little air bubble to live in. And so he lives in that air bubble, he breathes in that air bubble, eats in it, sleeps in it, mates in it. I don't know how that happens, but anyway... Um, and it's very, very cute, I think, the European uh, water spider. How long do you reckon that God has been enjoying this little tiny piece of his creation? Well, for longer than you and I can wrap our minds around, God has been enjoying the antics of this little creature since the beginning of creation. And it's just one of those little reasons why when God... In Genesis, he looked at everything that he'd made and he said, it is good. It is really good. Um, how do you feel about God's creation? I mean, uh, do you enjoy not just the, uh, the mega kind of parts of the creation, but what about the micro stuff as well, the little tiny bits of the creation? Um, we Aussies, we love to glory in our achievements, don't we? What are the kinds of achievements that we most like to glory in? We most like to glory in our sports, don't we? Just think the numbers 5-0 and you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, and it's good to celebrate achievement, isn't it? It's good to glorify certain things because that kind of adds a little bit of colour to life. But how easy is it for us to glorify things that are only temporary. How easy is it for us to ignore uh, the, the glories of the creation? And if it's easy to ignore the glories of the creation, how much easier 
is it to ignore the one who actually created the creation in the first place? Now, today we turn to Psalm 24, which you might want to have open in your Bibles uh, on page 392. Uh, it's a psalm that was written by King David, or David, uh, and that means that it was written about 3,000 years ago. And in this psalm, David reflects on the glories of God. And he says three things about the glories of God. He talks about the glories of God in, firstly, creation. He talks about the glories of God in, secondly, God's faithfulness. And he talks about the glories of God in, finally, the glories of God's people. And so we're going to dive into that psalm today. And uh, we're going to look firstly at what David says about the glories of creation. You know, in other psalms, for example, in Psalm 8, um, remember Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic, I won't sing the song, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. In Psalm 8 and other psalms like it, David reflects on the days, I guess, when he was a shepherd uh, tending his, his dad's flock out at, uh, you know, in the fields of, 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 in the night time when he would uh, look up and he would uh, really revel in the, in the glories of the, of, the, um, of the heavens at night. But he also reflected on the smaller things like the plants and the animals. And he starts with this very bold statement in verse 1 that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Now, what's he saying? Well, very simple, really, isn't it? He's saying that everything in the whole world, European water spiders, you and me, everything in the whole world is actually is owned by God. And how come he owns it? Well, because he made it. That's why. Now, some people might say, well, of course David would say something like that. I mean, David was just an ancient unscientific, you know, primitive man. I mean, look at what he says about the land. You know, he doesn't understand basic geography. He thinks that God is, he thinks that the, the land is actually kind of floating on the seas. Do you see that? But that's a very shallow understanding of what um, David's saying. It's far more profound than that. Um, in the nations that surrounded Israel, uh, people, people very often thought when they thought of the sea, they thought the sea was the place of chaos. They thought of the sea as being the place which needed to be subdued by their gods. But David is saying that's not true. The, the sea is not some kind of evil, chaotic force that the gods have to bring into line uh, because God has established the seas. God has established the land. God has established the seas. Indeed, when we looked at Genesis chapter 1, I think it was last year, wasn't it, when we did Genesis chapter 1? Anyway, when we looked at Genesis chapter 1 uh, and uh, those first few chapters of Genesis, we saw that when God created, and this is the point that's being made by the author of Genesis, that he created in a very orderly fashion, that it's not chaos, it's not disorder, that he, there's a pattern to creation and it's very good and it's very orderly because it's been created by God. And so 
David's first point here is that the glory of God is seen in his creation. Secondly, it's also seen in his faithfulness. <clears throat> in fact, if you, <clears throat> if you check out verses 7 through to 10, you'll find that the word glory appears five times. Let me read verses 7 through to 10 for you. He says, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. Great words, aren't they? And there's more than a few hymns that have been uh, based on these words. But what do they mean? What do they mean? Now, again, we, we Aussies, we do love to glorify our sports people, don't we? I think it was 1989 when the uh, Aussie cricketers won back the Ashes that there was a big ticker tape parade in Melbourne. It was really fantastic. Um, didn't quite happen that way the other week, did it? You know, 5-0, but they won on home turf. And uh, there was that party down at Circular Quay where 4,000 people plus the Prime Minister turned up to glorify them. You know, the Italians actually do it better. Does anyone know um, who Alessandro Del Piero is? Some of you know. You can tell the soccer fans here, can't you? Uh, what team does he captain? And was he captain coach of what team, Andrew? Sydney FC. Sydney FC. You know, he went back to Italy a couple of months ago and he was greeted by half a million people. 500,000 Italians turned out in the streets to welcome him back. He's one of the greatest soccer players that there is. Uh, I think the Italians, well, they're just very excitable people, aren't they? They like to, you know, and... <clears throat> but if, if that's how we glorify our sports heroes, how much more should we honour the, uh, the soldiers who come back having, uh, you know, fought for their country and fought in battle? In verses 7 through to 10, what David is doing here is he's painting a picture of an army an army that's returning home after being victorious in battle. And uh, the picture here is of the commander of the army, who's the king. He arrives at the city gates and he commands that the doors be opened. But it's more than just the army which is at the gates because he says, Lift up your heads, O you gates, that the king of glory may come in. Now, any other ancient monarch would have been referring to himself. He'd be saying, lift up the gates that I can come in. I am the king of glory. But not this one. Because the reply comes back from the other sides of the gates, who is the king of glory? And the answer, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, he is the king of glory. Now notice that the word Lord is L-O-R-D capitalised, which means it's saying Yahweh. Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. He is the king of glory. So when Israel went out for, to battle, there was one object that they had to take with them. Uh, and do you remember what that object was? It was a rectangular box it was called the, think Indiana Jones, 
It was called the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, uh, timber, rectangular box, and inside that box there was some important objects, including a couple of stone tablets. Guess what was written on them? And what the Ark of the Covenant uh, represented was that it represented uh, Israel's relationship with God and the presence of God amongst them. The Ark of the Covenant played a significant role in some really important events like the crossing of the Jordan River and the fall of Jericho. But it, uh, it symbolised the presence of God. And so that's why when they went into battle, they would take the Ark of the Covenant because that would be saying that God is our king, that God is the one who will win this victory for us. And uh, that's why, you know, in these verses we've got this picture of Israel's army entering the city and who is it who wants to come through the gate three times it says the king of glory um, because God was their king and they've got the ark God is with them he is their commander-in-chief but it doesn't just show that God was strong enough to win the battle because more importantly it shows that God is faithful because God has made promises to his people. Now, when we looked at Genesis 12 and onwards uh, with Abraham, do you remember, what was it that God promised Abraham? There were three key things that he promised. This is revision time, folks. Three key things that God promised Abraham. He promised him, firstly, a... I'll start you off, a land. Secondly, a... a people. And thirdly, a... A blessing, that's right, a land, you, you did pretty well, you did pretty well. A land, a people and a blessing. And uh, so what he's promised is that uh, he would be their God, that they would be his people, that he would give them the promised land and that they would live in that land free from fear of their enemies. And so when Israel wins a battle, it's evidence that God is being faithful to that promise, to those promises. And so we see his glory in that. God is glorified in his creation. He's glorified in his faithfulness. And, and this is a, a glory which calls for a response. Because in verses 3 through to 6, God is also glorified in the response of his people. Um, David poses a question. Take a look at it. He says... Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The holy place was the city of Jerusalem. Um, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, uh, David's, uh, King David's army had uh, conquered uh, Jerusalem, which was inhabited by the Jebusites. And in the following chapter, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, they bought the Ark of the Covenant, into the city of Jerusalem. And that is why Jerusalem is the place where you go to to worship God. Um, it finds its origins in 2 Samuel 5 and 2 Samuel 6. And so who can therefore ascend that hill? Who can enter into that place and worship God? Well, it is he who responds rightly to God. And uh, in verse 4, it says, It is he who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Now, 
Um, in Australian culture, uh, it is not likely that we would be people who would lift up our souls to a piece of carved wood or chiselled stone, the kind of idols that... Our idols are more likely to be made of bricks and mortar or rubber and steel. And we, 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 we idolise even the creation itself, don't we? Um, a number of years ago, there were some complaints were being made by people who'd suffered various kinds of injuries at uh, beaches, and they were saying that they're likely to sue local councils if local councils don't make beaches safer places to, to hang out. Uh, Waverley Council said, well, in that case, we might just have to close down Bondi Beach. <laughs> the news headlines said Australian culture under threat uh, because of the cl possible closure of the beach. It's, these things are so important to us. And we can sometimes... T come with me to Romans chapter 1 for a moment, will you? In Romans chapter 1, and we'll have a look at verses 18 through to 23. Now, you find Romans 1 on uh, page 796 in your Red Pew Bibles. Everyone got that? Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18. Have a look at it. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. You know, people say, well, look, you know, I'll believe in God if he just appears in front of me. I can see him. I say, well, open your eyes and have a look at what he's actually created. And it's, Paul says here that these things are indisputable. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, isn't it the nature of sin that we wonder at the beauty of creation, we enjoy the faithfulness in, of God in all that he provides for us, but then we devote ourselves to the creation and we bow down and worship the creation. We give our lives over to serving the created things rather than the, cre rather than the creator, who is the one who is to be ever praised. And we can see, therefore how it is that God's glorification is limited by human sinfulness. For in our natural states, we do not come to God with clean hands. We do not come to God with a pure heart. You know, the great irony, though, the irony of the gospel is that in the messiness of human sin, that God's glory ultimately finds its expression. Because when you think about it, in Old Testament times, the symbol of God's presence was the Ark of the Covenant, but it was a symbol only because it pointed to a day when God himself would enter into the city 
on the back of a donkey. The creation is a reflection of the glory of God, but if we are to see God in all of his glory, then we should look to Jesus. Because Jesus is the ultimate expression of God. For Jesus is God. Now, in your uh, outline, so you'll see some passages that have been printed out for you. Let me just take you some, through some of those passages. John chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, here, the apostles stated the case so eloquently when he said that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, where it says that the Son is the exact radiance of God's glory. That is, God's glory radiates from Jesus. Uh, or in 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, where Paul said that we have received the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The extraordinary truth of the Bible is that God became a man. He became one of us. Um, you want to know uh, the one who created the European water spider? Uh, you want to experience God's faithfulness in all of its splendour? Then come to Jesus. The one who healed the sick. The one who drove out demons. The one who calmed the sea. And yet, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, the Apostle Paul tells us that when God actually did enter our world, that none of the rulers of this age understood it, because if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Instead of glorifying the Creator, the creature murdered the King of glory. But in so doing, a new creation has been established. For the death of Christ means that many sons have been brought to glory. The penalty for sin has been paid. Uh, the power that the evil one has held over us has been broken. The king of glory has won the battle on behalf of his people, on behalf of you and me. One of the things I like about our being part of our church is that we're part of what's called a confessional we are a confessional church. We have a statement that clearly articulates uh, what we believe. We've got a statement which every minister and every elder in our church has sworn to, uh, to maintain, to uphold and to defend. And it's a statement that uh, captures our understanding of, of the Bible. It's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. It was written over 300 years ago. And at the time when it was written, uh, the authors also wrote another document called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was a, uh, a tool for training new believers and uh, teaching people what the Christian faith actually is about. So it's a question-answer kind of document. And most famously... The Westminster Shorter Catechism poses the question, what is the chief end of man? 
And it rightly answers, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, how do we glorify God? Well, by thanking him, by trusting him and honouring him with all of our lives because of what he has done that the king of glory has actually won the battle for us. Uh, let me finish by just sharing with you one of the ways that you can enjoy God forever in a way that you wouldn't have even thought of. It's another wonderful picture from creation. Now, I'm sure the biology teacher, teacher here can correct me if I'm wrong on this one, but these things are called diatoms. Is that right, Tim? How many diatoms would you find in a teaspoon of water taken from a lake? Uncountable. Maybe, say, trillions? Trillions? I was going to say millions, but uh, I'll take trillions. Look at them, folks. They've printed them for you in your uh, sheets there. Aren't they beautiful? My wife is a graduate in needlecraft, and uh, she does needlecraft things that are like that, and I can't do them, but uh, there's trillions of these in a teaspoon of... Aren't they beautiful? How long has God been enjoying diatroms for? For as long as the whole of creation. And you know what their purpose is? Their biology teacher's going to correct me on this. Their, their, <laughs> their purpose is to create oxygen in the water so that some of the other sea creatures can live a life a little bit more efficiently than the European water spider has to live his life. So, folks, let's just bow in prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you for, uh, for how glorious you truly are. We thank you for the reflection of your glory that we see in the creation all around us. Give us eyes to see more of it, Lord God, and to really praise you and enjoy you because of your creation. Father, we thank you for your glory in your faithfulness, that you have created a people who are your very own, that uh, Jesus, the King of glory, has won the battle on our behalf uh, through his death and his resurrection. We thank you for that, Father God. And our prayer is that you would be glorified through us, your people. Our prayer is that uh, having received the forgiveness through the gospel, that we would be people who uh, lift up clean hands and clean hearts and lift up our souls to you and not to idols, that you would be glorified in us. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.